Well, we are going to pause our study in the book of 1 Thessalonians for this morning, and we're going to look at a text in Hebrews and continue from what we've been focused on this morning already, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this morning, we are going to look at a text in heaven that focuses on, a, uh, on an aspect of the uh, achievements of the death and resurrection of Christ that is always something important and necessary for our souls, and that's Christ's continuous, present, intercessory ministry. We rightly locate the assurance of our salvation in that historical moment that took place almost 2,000 years ago, the resurrection from the dead was that indication in the most vivid form possible that the atonement that Christ had achieved was satisfactory, was pleasing to the Father, and to show that the Father raised him from the dead. And we even that our confession in that resurrection is, is the basis of our salvation. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Such a precious gospel and a simple gospel at that. Because Jesus was raised from the dead and, and because we believe it, we are saved. But there is more to the achievements of Jesus Christ that serve as the basis, the assurance of our salvation. Now certainly that historical resurrection is the the foundation for it all. It is that center point, the apex in God's redemptive plan. But there is a ministry that Jesus is doing right now, an achievement that is taking place every moment on our behalf that is all... And that, is, that ministry is described for us very vividly in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. Turn to that text, and I'll read it, and we are going to spend our time this morning in this very, very precious text. The writer writes, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, it's important to consider moments the context of this letter. To whom was it written and in what circumstance? Now, this letter, even as its title suggests, was written to Hebrews, to Jews. And from what we can tell from this, this letter and a survey of this letter was that the recipients, these Jewish recipients, were of a mixed group. Indeed, there, there were some who were who who had come to embrace Jesus as the fulfillment of the messianic promises they truly did believe that Jesus was the the ultimate sacrifice they believed he was the ultimate priest he 
They, they believed he was the ultimate prophet and they had placed all their hope and trust in, in him. And as we go through, first, or through Hebrews, you, you see them addressed many times. But you also see in this letter another category of these religious people, these Jews, who, who from what we can tell were, were very familiar with the gospel message, uh, with the teaching about Jesus, but had not yet come to that point where they believed that he was indeed the Messiah. They, uh, they were still not convinced. Uh, they still were looking for something more. They were attracted in some sense to, to Jesus and to the church, to that early assembly of Jewish believers, but there was no trust on their part at that fundamental level in who Jesus is. And yet there were still others who who were on the fence, and so for them, they, they were attracted to Jesus, and yet they still loved the old system, the old traditions, the, the, the trappings of the sacrificial system and, and all the rituals that were present in the, the temple, and they wanted the best of both worlds. They had not made a decisive break. There had not been a decisive conversion from that old way, the old covenant to the new covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews is addressing these various groups as, as he writes. And, and as he does, he writes this letter on the superiority of Jesus Christ. If you would summarize this letter with one phrase, it is just that, the superiority of Jesus Christ. We see it from verse 1 of chapter 1 to chapter 4, verse 13. We see the writer extol the superiority of Jesus in terms of his position. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 28, of which our verses are just at the end of that section, the writer exalts the superiority of Jesus as it relates to his... And all throughout the letter, over and over again, the writer extols Jesus. Jesus is better than everything. He is better than the angels. He's better than the prophet Moses. He is better than the Levitical priests. He is better than all the sacrifices. He is better. And what he offers is so much better than all the, the religious efforts that marked the old system. Jesus is a better revelation. Jesus is a better rest. Jesus is a better covenant. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better salvation. And Jesus brings better privileges. To this group of very religious, very devout people, the writer of Hebrews extols Jesus Christ and shows him to be superior. Now our verses that we'll look at, found it, as I said, at the end of this section, which begins in chapter 4 verse 14 and ends in chapter 7 verse 28, right at the end of, uh, of chapter 7, and this section chapter 4, 14 to 728, is a section that is uh, focused on one Old Testament text in particular. You see, what the writer of Hebrews does, it's very unique to the writer of Hebrews, is, is that the writer of Hebrews takes several key Old Testament texts, and in his letter, he exposits them. And in this particular section, his, his focus is an Old Testament text drawn from Psalm 110, verse 4. 
That occupies our writer's attention all the way from chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 28. So this is a, a critical text. In fact, he's drawing from a psalm that is the most quoted psalm, Psalm 110. And as we know, that is a, a psalm about the Messiah, very explicitly messianic. David begins Psalm 110 with these words. He says, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And understand, this is King David. Above him, in the hierarchy, there is no one above him in in any kind of human term, in any kind of political sense, than David. He is the head of the nation. And yet David says, Yahweh has said to my Adonai, The one that David called Lord is the one who receives the words of Yahweh. And in verse 4 of that amazing psalm, we read these words, a prophecy uh, about David's Lord. Yahweh has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You, referring to David's Adonai, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Yahweh makes a promise which is very unique. David himself was not a priest. David himself was never described as a a priest. He never fulfilled that role as a priest. And yet you you have Yahweh speaking to David's Lord and saying, you are a priest forever. But this is no ordinary priest. As Psalm 110 verse 4 says, this is a priest who has and occupies his priestly office according to what he does then in chapter 4.14 to 7 verse 28 is, is that the writer of Hebrews expounds on that prophecy and, and draws out all the implications of that as it relates to its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And our verses come at the end of of that text, of that lengthy exposition. Now I want to begin reading a little bit before our verses here in order to to set some broader context of where the the, the writer is leading us to in in these verses. I want to begin reading at chapter 7, verse 11. And these, these verses leading up to our our text in verse 23, 24, 25 are really important for setting the stage. The writer writes this, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there also takes place a change in the law. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, genealogy, 
but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment, the former law, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much more. Also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The writer here extols the superiority of Jesus by by pointing to Jesus' unique priestly status and and the unique ministry that arises out of Jesus' exclusive priesthood. Now, how does he do this? How does he, how does he show the superiority of Jesus and his priesthood? He does this by comparing. As we're going to see in the text, he, he does this by comparing the, the priesthood of the Levitical order, the priesthood that was established by the law, the priesthood that was carried on by genealogy from, in, in one tribe, the tribe of Levi, and, and, and shows how that priesthood led to one conclusion and how the priesthood of Jesus, which is not by genealogy, but is by oath, it is by declaration, how that priesthood is superior. So he does this by comparison, and we're going to see this comparison in verses 23 and 24. And then having compared the two priesthoods, having compared the two kinds of priests, there will then be a conclusion that he draws in verse 25. Let's look at this comparison first in verses 23 and 24. The graphic comparison, the graphic comparison and, and to, to begin with, we have to look at one side uh, of what is compared. We have to look at one of the objects. And so the first object of comparison is described for us in verse 23. And our text reads this. As, as, as the writer of Hebrews focuses on the, the Levitical priesthood, he writes, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now, our translation has tried to smooth out some of the uniquenesses here in word order. You could retranslate it this way to follow the, the, the word order more, more woodenly, and it would sound like this. On the one hand, the many who have become priests because of death are prevented from continuing. On the one hand, the many who have become priests because of death are prevented 
from continuing. Let's look at that now phrase by phrase. He says at the very beginning, on the, on the one hand, so here we have the, the priesthood that was, that was put in place by the Mosaic law. The priesthood that was described, you go back to the Pentateuch, by the writings of Moses. On the one hand, this priesthood, and he calls them the many. And that's very important. We're going to see that especially when we get to the other item of comparison in verse 24. But he, but he, he calls them the many. And, and by virtue of the word order, that word many is thrown to the front of the, the clause in order to emphasize that, that quantity, the many. He wants us to, to, to think about and contemplate the, the sheer quantity of the Levitical priests. Moreover, what's important to understand here is that the writer of Hebrews is not focusing on all of the Levitical priests who would all serve simultaneously at once. There would at the temple, from the institution of the Levitical priesthood to, to the destruction of the, the temple, the priests, the Levitical priests, uh, were, were many in number hundreds and thousands upon thousands of, of priests who would have their roles and duties within the worship that was connected to the, the tabernacle or then to the, the temple. But he's not focusing on contemporaneous quantity. He's not focusing just on the Levitical priesthood in general. He's focusing on one particular office of the Levitical priesthood. He's focusing on the high priest. The fact that, that he's focusing on that is, 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 is drawn out for us, even in verse 26. Look there for just a moment. You can tell that the writer is, is focused on the high priesthood because in verse 26 he says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. The, the focus here in this text is on the of the high priests. And so it is not a successive quantity because you would have just one high priest at any time. When he writes the many... He wants us to think of the successive quantity, the sequential quantity. From the moment that the Levitical priesthood and the office of the high priest was instituted at Sinai, all the way until that moment, he wants his readers to think of all of the high priests who had ever served. He wants us to think of that. And he says, he says, the many who have become priests. Now, when he says that as well, it is, it, it is a, an indication that we are to think of how these, these priests would receive their, their responsibilities. Context, the, as we even read, uh, the focus is, when it pertains to the Levitical priesthood, is, is on genealogy. You, in the general sense, would just become a priest just because you had the right genes. That's all. Didn't matter who you were, you just came in the right family tree. You just had the right lineage. You had the right parents. And so you could become a priest. And, and that's the focus in the preceding verses that this was just passed on from one generation to the next, to the next. And, and, and the high priests as well, it had to do with genealogy and it had to do with the tribe of Levi. And those who became priests, and even high priests in that order, became high priests because of the genealogy. It was just something that came to them. But as the writer goes on to say in this comparison, verse 23, that they 
because of death, were prevented from continuing. Now, you might just pass over that quickly and not think of the ramifications of that. Uh, we in the human race are very acquainted with death, and you know, we even say you know, the, the, the things that are given in life are death and taxes, right? April 15th, just you know, tax season just passed. And so we look at this and say, yeah, what's the significance of that? But the writer is pointing to the reality here that death was not just something that naturally occurred. Certainly it did to these priests, but their deaths indicated an inability. And the fact that they had to then be replaced by the next one was a, was a vivid demonstration of their impotence, of their inadequacy. Eventually, the, the, the wages of sin would come to them in a, in a most dramatical and final way, and they would die. They would die. And one after the other, so many, one after the other after the other, the many, the high priest just kept on dying. Some of them served just a very short time amount of time. Others would serve longer, but the same end came to every one of those Levitical high priests, death. And someone else would then rise up to take their place. One would serve, never finish. He would die. The next one would be needed. And of course, this was particularly important as it related to one important day during the year, the Day of Atonement. The high priest's role was particularly important on that day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would make a sacrifice first for his own sin, and then he would enter the most holy place and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the sins of the people on the ark of the covenant. You can go to Leviticus 16 and read it there. And each successive high priest went through that process, first making the sacrifice for oneself and then for the people, entering the Holy of Holies with trepidation. And, and, and they would have to have a string tied around their, their ankle because if they had not properly confessed and repented of their sins, if, if they were blasphemers, as some of those were, they would be struck dead in that, high, uh, that, that holy of holies and have to be pulled out, their corpse pulled out from behind the curtain. But what is certain is that no Levitical high priest ever remained in that Holy of Holies. He would make the sacrifice and leave. There would be enough grace and mercy extended to that high priest if he wasn't struck dead to enter that holy place, sprinkle the blood as a symbol of the sacrifice upon that Ark of the Covenant and then leave. There was no way in which he could stay. They were weak, these priests. They were imperfect. They were ineffectual. They were temporal. And there were generations of 83 high priests from the, the time of Aaron until the destruction of the temple in AD 70. 83 of them. 
83 high priests. And, and the last one served only because the temple was destroyed. It wasn't because his work was somehow effectual. One after the other, 83 of them, always needing a replacement. And the Old Testament contains many descriptions of these high priests, many of them unsavory. You have Aaron, who himself was, was, was naive and ignorant and complicit in the construction of the golden calf. You have Aaron's sons, Adab and, uh, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire. You have Eli and, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, horrible examples of, of priests, and, and yet they were, those priests were never able to fulfill responsibility to finality. They were never able to complete the sacrifice and remain. And so we have here the first object of comparison, and as we read verse 23, we're left with two very important words. That that priesthood was temporal and it was ineffectual. Temporal and ineffectual. Now let's look at the second object of, of comparison in this graphic comparison of verses 23 and 24. And the second object of comparison, the other side, is now described for us in verse 24. And it is a fascinating statement. The writer says this, But Jesus, on the other hand... Because he continues forever, holds his priest like that, and, and put it in a more woodenly uh, order, and, and it would go something like this, but the one, because he remains forever, holds his priesthood permanently. This side of the contrast begins with this contrasting conjunction. And what's interesting to note is that the name Jesus actually doesn't occur in the original. Now, it clearly refers to Jesus. We, you can't help but understand that that's the referent. But in the language of verse 24, the, the name Jesus doesn't appear. Rather, what appears is a, is a, is a, sing, a simple article. The. And the idea is to emphasize singularity. He, here he's not trying to, 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 to emphasize the, the human name of Jesus, although that is on his mind, emphasizing one. And this stands in great contrast to the many that we just saw in verse 24, 23. On the one hand, the many. But here, on the other hand, is the one. On the one hand, these many. On the other hand, this one. And, and so here we find that this comparison drawn to the, this first characteristic. Uh, the Levitical priesthood was marked by many. This priesthood of Jesus is just marked by one. Secondly, he goes on to say this in verse 24. He holds his priesthood permanently. He holds his priesthood permanently. The idea here is of enduringly, unchangingly. He holds it in his hand. Now, the, the emphasis here is that this priesthood is never transferred 
once it has been given to him, he never passes on the baton. There is never a time when it falters. There is a never, never a time when he is insufficient. There's never a time when someone else has to step up. There's never a time when someone else has to cover for him. Never a misstep, never a failure. He holds it permanently. And this is the second item of, of comparison that the writer draws out, that not only is there a co contrast between the many and the one, but there's a contrast between a priesthood that is transferred due to, to ineffectualness, a, a contrast between the transferred nature of the priesthood and the permanent nature. He keeps it. He keeps it. And that raises the question, well, how and why? How compared to the others? And the writer writes this, because he continues forever. This is the reason why Jesus keeps his priesthood. This is the reason why his priesthood has no end. And, and it's based upon this simple verb, he remains he remains. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, remember that those high priests would spend just a few brief moments in the Holy of Holies because their lives could not dwell within perfect holiness. They were shown grace and mercy to fulfill a task on behalf of the people, but they needed to get out. They could not remain. But here in Jesus, we find one who remains. He enters the Holy of Holies, first of all, never having made a sacrifice for his own sins. But when he enters the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifice for the sins of the people and to scatter the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, he doesn't have to leave. He has the power of an endless life. His character was perfect. And this highlights the third aspect of the comparison, that not only is there a comparison between the many and the one, not only a comparison between a priesthood that is transferred versus one that is kept, there is also a, a, a contrast here between a priesthood in which the priest remains and one in the old system in which it left. And this, is, this is the beauty of the priesthood of Jesus. As I said, he does not, first of all, offer a, another sacrifice from another bull or goat. He does not offer a, a sacrifice of animals. He does not make a sacrifice first on his own behalf and, and then on behalf of the people. No, he gives his own life as the sacrifice and then presents it in the Holy of Holies for the sake of the people. There was no need to repeat it after that. Never having to leave that Holy of Holies meant that there would be no need ever for a return a year from now. There would never have to be another sacrifice after this one. It was that sacrifice which was perfect. It was the culmination once and for all. He takes his own blood. He offers it only for others. He does it just once and then he remains. This is a different kind of priest. 
It is a different kind of priesthood, a different kind of ministry. It is not temporal and ineffectual, but this one is permanent and efficacious. Permanent and efficacious. If we were to read elsewhere in this letter, we would read even in chapter 7, verse 16, that Jesus has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Verse 26, Hex says this, He is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted in heaven. The very next verse, verse 27 of chapter 7 says, He does not need daily to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of all the people. He does not need to do that. He does it and did it once and for all and then remains. That is the graphic contrast or the graphic comparison. Now we come to the glorious conclusion that we have to draw out of that comparison. And that's in verse 25, the glorious conclusion. Verse 25, notice these words, and these are so precious. He says, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he for them. The word therefore is a special term that points us to a logical conclusion that is being drawn out of what has just been stated. This is the the logical consequence of this comparison. Jesus' superiority and the unique priesthood that he has leads us to this point. And this is what we must focus on. Verse 25. Literally, the text says, to save unto the uttermost, he is able. It's a beautiful description. that This is the result of his permanent, his, his permanent priesthood, and it, it speaks of his ability. To save unto the uttermost, he is able. He is able. The, the idea of saving here is, is not a, a reference just to that moment of conversion, but the idea is to that finality of what it is intended to do. He is able to bring salvation to finality. He is able. He is able to save to the uttermost, to perfection, to finality. And those whom he saves, those whom he brings to this final point of ultimate salvation are those described in verse 25 as those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God through him. His sacrifice and his priesthood show that he is able to take one from that that moment of initial faith all the way into the end of glorification. He is able to do, but it relates to a specific category. It, is, it relates to those who draw near to God. Those who recognize their need of grace and mercy. In fact, this idea of drawing near to God, if you've read through Hebrews much, you've seen that this is a, a regular theme throughout the letter. 
4 verse 16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's, that is the call that is put before every human to draw near to God, to find mercy, to, to, to find grace in light of our needs. In chapter 7, verses 18 to 19, we've already read this. It there refers again that there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. In chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, we'll see it the command to draw near to God. And the writer says he is able to save, this one is able to save to the uttermost, to finality, to perfection. He is able to save those who draw near. And this drawing near indicates not some kind of spiritual privilege. It, it indicates some kind of spiritual need and destitution. It, it, is, it describes those who recognize that they are in need. That they don't have what it takes. And, and, and they are looking to the supply for for the solution to all of the soul's troubles. And those who draw near to God are those who will find this salvation if they draw near. Notice that phrase in verse 25, through Him. Recognize Jesus to be God's solution to man's greatest need. Those who recognize that there is nothing that they bring. Those who recognize all they bring is sin and sorrow and trouble and pain. That's all they bring. But Jesus has provided, or God has provided the way through Jesus. And Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who draw near to God for grace and mercy through him but how how notice the end of verse 25 since he always lives to make intercession jesus is able to save to the uttermost to culmination to final salvation he is able to do that because he always lives to make intercession for them. Now intercession was what the priests of the old covenant claimed they could do, but their own lives were ind indicative of the fact that they were unable even in doing that. But this one, he is able to intercede, to stand on their behalf, to stand between two, we see the same verb used in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, which says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand, also intercedes for us. He stands between, and he does so. Notice that little phrase in the text, for them. For those who draw near to God through him, Jesus never lives to make intercession for those. Intercession shows this great love of Jesus 
for those who have these needs. His great concern. And he is able and desirous to meet every one of these needs. Not one need is is too great for him. Not one trouble, not one sin is, is too much for him to handle. Calvin puts it this way, what sort of pledge and how great is this love toward us lives for us, not for himself. The priests were many, Jesus was one. The priests experienced inability, they were unable to continue. Jesus has the ability. The priests never endured, he does. The priests could not even save themselves. Jesus needed no salvation and he is able to save to the uttermost those who believe in him. The priest's work was imperfect. His was perfect. The priest died. Jesus always now lives. S. Lewis Johnson in response to this said, this is the amazing thing. He said, the Christian life, the life of drawing near to God through Jesus is a life which is lived by a realization of our inability and the Lord Jesus Christ's ability. All the merits are in Him. The merits in providing the sacrifice once and for all and the merits in bringing this priesthood into being and fulfilling it to the utmost. He is able. And He ever lives for those in need. In a beautiful hymn by Charles Wesley, the third stanza of that hymn, the hymn is called Arise, My Soul, Arise, puts it into wonderful words when, when, when Charles Wesley wrote this. He said, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry nor let that ransomed sinner die. With nothing but need. And even having been brought to faith and having been regenerated and saved, we still are a sorry bunch. Yes, we've been transformed. Yes, we're being sanctified. We're better than we were a year ago. We're a sorry, needy bunch. And in our best moments, in our, in our very best moments, we are so ridiculously far from the mark. If the Apostle Paul could say, I am the chief of sinners, how much more are we? We, we come with need, and nothing but need, but we come ever lives to receive it. The one who exists at the right hand of the Father to receive every one of these needs. The one who says, this is my job. This is what I live for. To take your sorrow, to take your stains and to show my merit before the Father and to cleanse you.
That is our intercessor. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And it is that, as well as his once-for-all sacrifice, that serves as the guarantee of our salvation. That simply by coming to the Father through him, through faith in him, believing in all of his, and even his merits today that he shows to the Father, believing in that is, is all that is needed. And he promises upon his very life to bring to completion that salvation. Well, as we conclude, a couple of thoughts here in response. I want you to think through this and to think your relationship to this intercessor. Perhaps, first of all, you're, you're thinking, well, wow, great, I can return to my sin now. Uh, I, I love it, but now I've got a guarantee. It'll be covered. I can go and enjoy the dredges of sin. Well, this intercession isn't for you. If that's how you're thinking, if, if this is just a, a get-out-of-jail-free card and, and a sin, he is not interceding for you. Maybe you're one who says, I don't need intercession. I've already got it covered. I, I, I've already arrived. Well, not only are you mistaken, but also this intercession isn't for you either. This intercession is only for a third category, and it is for those who say, I have need. It is only for those who say, I need grace, I need mercy. It is only for those who draw near to God through this priest, through this one who provided his life as a sacrifice and now achieves its results in heaven. It's only for those who see the sins of their lives, the only those who recognize the stain of it on their hand, on their tongue, and in their hearts, and know that as much as they want to, it still lingers in this life. This intercession is for you. This intercessor lives for you. And he promises that for all those who have come to God through him, he will bring you to the end. And your salvation is as sure as his resurrection and as his effectual intercession to the Father. There's a beautiful hymn, one of my favorites, written by Charity Lees Bancroft, written in the 1800s. It was first called Advocate, but it is now called Before the Throne of God Above. We're going to close with just a wonderful opportunity to praise this intercessor. Let me read a stanza and then pray. The hymn begins with this stanza, reflecting this wonderful truth from Hebrews chapter 7. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. His name is graven, my, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written 
on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. This text of Hebrews leads us to adoration. It leads us to also to to mystery. Mystery in the sense of why for us. We are the cause of his death. And even, even having come to know him savingly, we continue to be the reason for his ongoing intercession. And yet we, we were marveled by the fact that he loves to do this for us.